Well, hey, welcome to uh, uh, our church community. Uh, we're glad to have you here. We, we love you, and we're, we're thankful that uh, we get to worship with you this morning. Um, so we are continuing our Summer of Psalms series, and uh, what we're doing basically is we're taking time during our worship gathering to immerse ourselves in a, a different world of biblical scripture. Uh, this isn't a world of... of um, of, of argument and, and order as, as sometimes we're used to seeing in Scripture. We really like it when Scripture goes, one plus one equals two. And we go, I can fit, I can follow that, I make sense, that was grade school, I get it. The poetry of the Psalms does not go one plus one equals two. They go, one, isn't that a cool number? It's so nice and shapely and it's got edges and points. Plus, where did that word come from? Let's talk about that for a little while. One, why not repeat it again? Here's the beauty of repetition. Like, that's how, that's how poetry works in Scripture. It's not, it's not giving us this orderly path from step one to step two, therefore this. It's saying, God is like this thing that I can't even describe, but I'm going to do my absolute best to paint a picture for you with words about how amazing he is and how he works and how, how incredibly poignant his truth is for me right now. It is a very different world, a world of metaphor and poetry, of, of song and cadence, of emotional reflection and response. So as we immerse ourselves in this, this world of poetry of the Psalms, we are uncovering the beautiful reality of God's word as a prayer language. A language that, 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 that God comforts and assures and strengthens people. And we use, ultimately, those same prayers to express what is going on in the depths of our souls. And there are all these different emotional states and statuses that we come into that the Psalms give us a place and a, and a language to be able to process through those things to God. And so those are, those are things like fear and joy and doubt and forgiveness. And they have this unique way of sympathizing with our emotional state and bringing us to a place of communion with God. And sometimes where we, we fall short and we become absent and distanced from his presence, the Psalms do this beautiful act of ushering us back into that communion with God that we can walk with him and trust him and surrender to him. So I hope that you've taken the opportunity to grab one of our summer reading plans uh, and that you have begun reading along with us over the last few weeks. Um, what we have done essentially is we have divided all 150 psalms over the course of the entire summer uh, from now until then. And so uh, I would just encourage you, if you haven't yet picked one of those up, to, to take one home with you and give it a try. Just begin reading one psalm in the morning, one psalm at night, and whatever God speaks to you in that, in that psalm, that you would just, that would prompt a prayer within your spirit to just bring that to God as a way to communicate to God. And if you are not a natural prayer, like if you are a person of few words, or if the act of praying seems all too together strange, sometimes the Psalms give us a language that we need when there is nothing that we, we're, we don't really work well at putting those things together. I, I will say, I don't think God is looking for originality. He is looking for genuineness. He's looking for authenticity. But he doesn't need you to reinvent the wheel. God gives us a prayer language that we can use and utilize to go into more communion with him. So go ahead and take one of those. If you're behind a couple weeks, it's okay. You can catch up if you want. You can pick up where we are. There's beauty in actually following along with the day pattern. And the beauty of that is that everybody in our church who's going along with it at the same time as you is praying the same prayer that you're praying in the mornings and at night. And that's an amazing kind of thing. So you actually are unifying your prayers together as one to God that we're praying with the same heart and the same mind. And so I would encourage that to you, but if it works better to just start wherever you want, hey, start wherever you want, as long as it encourages you to pray with the, with the Lord. 
So uh, this morning we are beginning a, a two-part sermon on the God of the least. And one of the last things that Jesus says at the very end of his earthly ministry is this encouragement to his fathers. He says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus then warns his followers that those who ignore and disregard and dismiss the starved and thirsty and naked and the, the stranger and the sick and the prisoner, they will not be received into the kingdom. They will be sent away from abundant life and they will find an eternal punishment waiting for them instead. Now, I know that sounds a little bit extreme because, I mean, isn't the way that we often talk about it, isn't being a Christian or becoming a Christian all about asking Jesus into your heart and, and believing in the right things and and then after that, isn't it all about personal holiness and staying away from the things that are fun and pleasurable and enjoyable, but ultimately, for reasons unknown to us, bad and wrong? I mean, isn't that what being a Christian is all about? Isn't that what becoming a Christian and what you're choosing to do is, I can't have any more fun, but at least I believe the right things, right? And yet here is Jesus, and, and Jesus is the one that we talk about inviting into our heart. He's the one that we call out as the Savior of the world. And he is giving us this straight truth. He says, if your heart is full of compassion and grace for the least of all humanity, if you are a person whose life is driven and defined by God's sense of justice for the world, then Jesus says, you get it. You understand not just here, but here. What following him is all about. You understand that core commandment to love God and love your neighbor. And as a result, God's grace and, and, and mercy and eternal life are for you. It's not just acknowledging that Jesus is God or that God is God, whatever that might mean to you, but it's also understanding what Yahweh longs for. I always say it's not just our understanding of who God is, it's God's understanding of who God is. And often when left to us to define on those terms, we tend to shape God in our own image, an image that serves and meets our purposes, rather than God showing us what his heart is and showing us how he defines himself, that we would be shaped in his image and not the other way around. It's not just about acknowledging that Jesus is God or that he is a Savior. It's also about understanding what God longs for, what God's heart is, how he loves and pursues and aims to restore and redeem all things that have been broken and torn apart by the efforts of a humanity that just does not get the concept of human worth and concern for others. God is for the least. He tells Israel in Deuteronomy 24, Do not deny justice to an immigrant or fatherless child. Do not take advantage of the widow, because you were a slave, and Yahweh redeemed you from there. You were freed and redeemed and brought into the people of God. And as the people of God, do justly as God is just. 
Later, uh, James writes to the church and he says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, we spend a lot of time in the church working out how to stay unstained and separated from the world. We, we've kind of got that part down. But how much do we truly work out the first part of that definition for pure and undefiled Christian practice? God is a God of the least, and he is a God for the least. And another word for this is that God is a God of justice. The author Ken Witzma says it this way. He says, justice involves harmony, flourishing, and fairness. And it is based on the image of God in every person, the imago dei, that grants all people inalienable dignity and infinite worth. Justice is one of the key characteristics of Yahweh. And if we believe and ought to be called the children of God, the children of Yahweh, then we ought to see justice become one of our key characteristics as well. But I will say right here, this is not a teaching on your sense of justice. Not yet. This is a teaching on God's sense of justice. So my prayer is that you will see a God that is worth trusting in, worth relying on, worth looking into and toward, worth calling out to, and especially when you find yourself brought low, pushed out, exiled, challenged, shut down. Because it's in these moments when you are tempted to think that God is furthest away, that he is in fact as close as you could ever know. So let's pray and we'll get into Psalm 9. Father, we just, uh, I ask that you would just be leading our time this morning, that you would speak your truth through your scripture, that we would be listening, that we would hear it, and that we would come to know and respond to this God of justice, this God who is for the least of these. May our hearts break for what breaks yours. May we see with eyes that you see. May we come to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now I, I said before that this is a two-part series because Psalms 9 and 10 are two-part psalms. Psalm 9 is part 1, and Psalm 10 is uh, part 2. So uh, this week we're going to be talking about Psalm 9, and next week will be Psalm 10. Now I say that because these are known as an acrostic poem where each line of the song begins with consecutive letters of the alphabet. And what I might have just said that, and now you're going to be going and looking at your Bible saying, hold on, my Bible says I, 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 W-T-F-U-Y-Y-Y-Y-T-Y-A. That is not the alphabet. I'm sorry. And, and that's true, of course. It does not show you an alphabetic from A to B to C. And that's because what we're not talking about is, is English. Because in English, we have done this amazing job of butchering any sense of poetic power that these psalms might have had. We are ta- talking about English. We're talking about Hebrew. Hebrew has 23 consonants from Aleph to Tav, and each line of the Hebrew poetry progresses from one to the next. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit, Hey. And each one of them progresses, carrying over from nine into ten to create this expansive exaltation of the God of the least, this God of justice. So... Uh, if you will, this is going to be a, a long journey. Uh, I hope to make it as pa- relatively painless as possible, but there will probably be some pain involved. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Psalm 9. If you don't have a Bible, we have uh, a couple in the... Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Um, 
If you don't have a Bible, let me know. Well, I'll get you one. Um, and uh, otherwise, it's going to be up here on the screen. Uh, happy to follow along with you this morning. So, Psalm 9 is what you might call an imprecatory psalm. And that's, that means imprecation is just this really long theology word that just means uh, it's a poem that would be written to invoke destruction on your enemies. And that might be kind of weird to pray through, and I get it. Please don't constantly pray for destruction upon your enemies, okay? Uh, we just heard Jesus say a few weeks ago, we are to love our enemies, and we are to pray for those who persecute you, but not to pray in that way, that they would be utterly destroyed. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, what we're reading is that David is asking this God to, to put terror into the hearts of nations, but, but again, come at this from a poetic sense of what David is doing. He is taking the, ten the attention away from those who bask in self-made unjust glory. And they're redirecting it toward God and, and showing how God's heart is not for those who make their own way, who build up their own kingdoms. It is for those who are oppressed and attacked and in need along the way. So David's going to start here in verse 1 with just this, this very simple praise to the Lord. Verse 1, he says, I will thank Yahweh, the Lord, with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, Most High. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities, and the very memory of them has perished. So David starts out with these four verbs of intent toward God. Four verbs that identify what Samuel calls as the man after God's own heart. I will thank Yahweh. I will declare your works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, El Elyon, Most High. David starts, and what he does here just to begin his poem is he starts by setting, assuming this posture of worship and thankfulness and gratitude. And, and in fact, worship is a posture. It's not just an activity. It's not just singing songs on Sundays. It's not the service that we hold from 10.30 to noon. It's the way in which I present myself before God, where I recognize that He is worthy of awe and wonder and gratitude, and, and I am not, nor are any other created things of this world. How you approach God how you enter his presence is going to reveal much about how, how much you actually believe in his goodness, in his power, in his ability to do something about your life and the hardship that you are running into, about the difficult circumstances you are facing. It's, gonna, it's going to set the tone and the stage for how you actually believe God is going to work in your life. So do you believe that God is a customer service agent whose sole objective is to make you satisfied and happy? Do you believe that God is a father, but not like a loving, strong father, more of like the bumbling dad on the sitcom who is easily manipulated? Is God that kind of father? Do you believe that God is a maniacal, fickle tyrant who does some good things, but also some pretty bad and scary things, and it's probably best just to leave him alone? Or dismiss him altogether? Or do you believe that he's a good father who wants your best? That he's a good king who rules justly? He's a good savior who will do what needs to be done to make everything fair and right and redeemed? 
And whatever the case may be, whatever you truly think God is about, the, your posture, the way that you present yourself, will betray the reality of your heart. Well, let me put it this way. We are worshipful creatures. We never cease directing our attention somewhere. And sometimes you can tell where the true center of your worship lies. Have you ever been to a football stadium? Uh, TJ and I went to a, uh, a game in October of last year, and we, we went and saw the, the 49ers versus the Oakland Raiders. And, um, and, the, uh, and it was in San Francisco, and about 50% of the stadium was Oakland Raider fans, which was so exciting to me some of my fellow brethren. And, um, and you could see these, these men, most, mostly men, and they're, they're dressed in all kinds of garb, and they're, they're black and silver all the way, silver and black, and, and they're cheering and screaming, and the Raiders lost 33-3 to or something like that. And they just got annihilated. And it, and it didn't matter to these people because their, their whole attitude, their mindset was about cheering 60,000 strong, as loud as they could for some guys on the field playing awfully, I might add. But it didn't matter because what their posture said was this thing right now is the spectacle that is the most important thing in the world to me. Have you ever thought about your family room? Where, where are your couches always situated? Are they situated towards one another? Or are they situated for relationship? Or are they all pointed at something else? Some glowing, magical, mystical box that beams entertainment into your, into your room. And, 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 and we, we, we love to sit and have conversation except when our show is on and suddenly it's like, shh, hold up, please do not disturb me. The box is talking right now. Our posture says a lot about who we worship and how we direct our attention and our, our concern and our care. David's posture right here reveals that his life and his words and his attitude reflect on how good Yahweh has been to him. His posture is directed fully and completely. It's not just mere lip service, but it is all 100% towards his God how powerfully he has seen him work, how blessed he has been by him, how he is worthy of being called the highest of all beings. David starts out by putting God in his place, and it is a good place for God to be. And that's important because there are these, these other casts of characters in the Psalms story. But now David moves from the I statements, the I will statements, to the you have statements. And this is what David is truly thankful for. He says, you have upheld my just cause. You are a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have erased their name. You have uprooted the cities. Now look how David moves from one to the next. David doesn't give us a name for his enemies. He doesn't describe that which threatens his existence, and that's not totally the point here. The point is that there is this threat to his very humanity. Something that pushes up against the safety and security. There is some power that lives just outside of these covenant promises that he has made, outside of the divine order of things. But Yahweh says his cause is just and fair. And that means that God is a righteous judge. And if God is a righteous judge and, and, and David's cause is found to be right and just, that means that in the presence of his God, he finds safety and peace. He will find his safety there. Not so for the nations. Not so for the wicked. Their name has been erased from the record books. And this is a, this is a metaphor that works in the ancient Near East that when, when, when your name has been erased, 
so thoroughly expunged, any, any idea or memory of you has been so removed, it is as if you had never existed at all. In God, there is no more threat. There is only peace. And finally, you have uprooted the city. One commentator writes that the city is a metaphor for the identity of the people themselves and the people's relationship with their God. And so, as God uproots the city, he shows that, God, that city's God who is boss. That there is no threat that can overwhelm a righteous and just Yahweh. God is fair. He is safe. He pushes back danger. God removes the threat. He rules over every people and every God. He starts with you. And then he systematically undoes injustice. So David says, I will praise you. This is the prayer that David teaches us to pray. I will because you have. The prayer that David teaches us to pray is, I will because you have. I will thank you because you have provided. I will boast about you because you have done great things. I will sing about you because you have proved worthy of song. I will embody your sense of justice because you have shown me what justice looks like. I will remember you because you have remembered me. I will because you have is a powerful prayer. It is a prayer to speak out when God has given us victory and it is a prayer to speak out when you are faced with serious injustice. Now there are two things for us to be mindful of here. One, I would ask you to broaden your understanding of the enemy. It's not just the flesh and blood person who lives next door to you or across the way. It's not just the person who flipped you off in the car on the way to work. Anything that lives outside of right relationship with God and that pushes us to subvert that relationship is an adversary of God's justice. And anything that suppresses your human dignity and serves to measure your worth in finite, conditional ways is an adversary of God's justice. So that enemy may certainly be a person. It may be money. It may be your own self-worth. It may be your television or your obsession with sports or cars or clothes or your house. Anything against which you are prone to measure your humanity against and are found wanting is a threat to the image of God in which you were made. An image that says God created you, God loves you, God has good things planned for you. So that's number one. Number two is this. Don't always assume that your cause is the just one. Don't always assume that when you're coming to God and God says you're just, don't always assume that's you. That your cause is always the just one. Don't assume that you aren't the enemy. We human beings have a tendency to want to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. To justify our actions and choices, to vindicate our decisions. There is this bent inside of us that has existed since Adam and Eve made this very same choice to listen to and to believe a voice other than God's, to become like God, knowing good and evil, and to become the judge, jury, and executioner, not only of our own personal version of justice, but for everyone else as well. One thing I've noticed about the person who claims Jesus' command to do not judge 
is that they usually struggle to follow their own advice. Don't judge me. I'm judging you for judging me. How dare you judge me? Oh, judger of judges. Before you pray this prayer and presume your own righteousness, make sure that it is not self-righteousness. Bring your cause before God, before your pastors, before your spiritual mentors, and learn if the injustice lies with your enemy or with you. Because it is entirely possible that you are your own worst enemy. That you are the threat to your own existence. And if that is the case, I'm not here to say, how dare you? I'm here to say, know that there is a gracious judge who paid the penalty for your rebellion, for your injustice, and he wants to make it right. To be in the presence of a good judge means safety for the least and ruin for the enemy. But God has this mysterious and powerful way of making his enemies into friends. All right, you still with me? How's it going? Following so far? Okay. Let's move on to verse 7. But Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. Yahweh is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. David now makes this transition from I statements to you statements to he statements. And, and, and you get this sense in a way that David is almost preaching to himself here, which is good for us to do from time to time. My wife often preaches my own sermons back to me. She says, didn't you know that you just said this this morning? What's wrong with you? Um, and I go, you're right, I did, and I forgot to preach to myself. Um, so I think David is doing some of that here. So what is it that he is, is preaching to himself in this moment? What is he affirming and declaring? He says, Yahweh, the Lord, sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. David is making it known to anyone who will hear it that God is the most high king. And remember, David himself is what? He's a, he's a king over all of Israel. And what does the king do? The king makes the rules. The king decrees what is right and what is wrong, and, and he judges the people according to his rules. So a good king is a fair king, and his reign will probably last a long time. A bad king is an unfair king, and, and, and one who bends the rules of rightness to his side at the expense of others. And his reign will probably be short. Now then, then, but David doesn't talking about earthly kings here. He's talking about a heavenly king in Yahweh. And he says, this Yahweh is an eternal king whose reign is without end. And he uses his throne to be a good judge, to set fair decrees and weigh the balances rightly and, and promote justice throughout his lands. And this is important because David has every right, according to his status as king, to be the final authority for right and wrong. To, to, to decide for himself and for everyone else what is good and bad. And yet here, he sets that right aside because ultimately he answers to the true final authority for everything he decides, for every decree that he makes. For David, God's word is the final word because God's word is the fair word. God's word is the final word because God's word is the fair word. 
And this, to me, lends the question of, of what is that final word for you? In other words, what is the voice of influence and authority that determines who you are and what you do and where you go and, and how you live? Now, for some, that, that word is, is our social circles. Peer pressure determines what is good and wrong, what is just and unjust. And we listen to that voice above all the others. Maybe it's social media. We're obsessed over what direct... We, we vacillate always between whatever that word says to us is where we go and how good our emotions are for that day is what we saw on our social media posts. Or the, the 24-hour uh, TV news cycle. My particular ideological informer is right and true and good and others are, are fake and, and not and a, a threat to society. They are an enemy to me and... For some, that voice is intellectual and logical. For others, that, that authoritative voice is visceral and feelings-based. I trust because I know. I trust because I feel. So honestly, what is that authoritative voice in your life? You'll know it because you turn to it every time you feel anxious and worried. Every time uncertainty clouds your senses, every time you feel the word, the world is closing in on you. And that voice becomes your refuge, your place of safety and security, the thing that, that, you, that builds you up and, and asserts your identity, whatever that might be. And it makes you feel valued and validated. That's how you know what that voice is that's authoritative in your life. Know also that every single thing that I just mentioned has zero lasting and absolute sense of, of fairness and rightness. There is no sense of true justice that honestly and compassionately speaks into what ought to be that truly loves and lives for the least of these like God does. In fact, most of it ultimately promotes this attitude of tribalism where my ideological or social or economic or ethnic group is better than yours and everyone else is my enemy and, and must be destroyed for my own self-protection. Tribalism divides, compartmentalates, venerates, validates, and invalidates and ultimately is one of the greatest promoters of injustice the world knows today. So, are you in need of a good, authoritative voice in your life? And I will say there's one right in front of you. The church has for the last 2,000 years, but particularly in the last 500 years, committed to the Bible as the final authority for all faith and practice. Now, I say final authority because it is not the only authority. There are other good voices of influence and wisdom that will point you to the truth of God's heart. Your church leaders, your spiritual mentors, a godly husband or wife, and, and even the moving and prompting of the Holy Spirit can lead you to the good things of God. But everything must be measured and weighed against this book right here. This is where true justice is found. This is where all people find inalienable dignity and infinite worth. This is where God speaks, and it's where God invites you to know him. Here's the thing. Wherever you seek authority, wherever you seek refuge from the threat of marginalization or humiliation or a subversion of your humanity, you are putting your trust in something that you hope will not abandon you or forsake you or leave you behind. You hope that that voice, whatever it may be, has your back. But minds change and ideologies shift and economies crash and society fades in and out and, and that worth and value that you have now 
may not last later. God is the refuge for the persecuted. He is safety in times of trouble. Those who know the name of Yahweh, those who believe in him and trust in him and have relationship with him will not be abandoned because he will not forget the cry of the oppressed. All right. One last section to get to. All right, ready? Verse 13, here we go. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death so that I may declare all your praises. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. The nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed justice, snaring the wicked by the work of their hands. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God, for the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. Rise up, Yahweh. Do not let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence Put terror in them, Yahweh. Let the nations know they are only humans. Now, up until verse 13, David has been extolling the virtues of this powerful and authoritative judge. How how Yahweh is judge, and he is right, and he is fair, and we are not. We're just not. We tend to When we make judgments, we tend to say human worth and value and dignity is up to us to decide. And based on your behavior, your attitudes, your actions, you will go up or you will go down. And we want to determine that. And fair or not, that's how we choose to exist. And yet Yahweh comes and says he is the good and right judge. But now here, here David comes and he says, yes, you are that amazing judge. Now, now that I have asserted that fact, now that I have declared that to the world, please help me out. David, David has to kind of set the tone for this, this now, this moment where his pleas become real. It's one thing to set God up on the stage and say, yes, God, you are the judge. You are right. I I do believe all of those things. But what happens when the rubber meets the road? What happens when the afflictions become real? When everything sits theoretical, it's all good. It's all well and good. When things become serious and physical and true, that's when those questions truly come into play. And we'll come in, in... Psalm 10, the very first thing, David comes and cries out. He says, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? So, so he is going to get very real starting next week. But, but here, David turns and pleads his case to the good judge. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. David, David then goes and he, he talks about the, these gates of death. And he's referring to this place called Sheol, this underworld dwelling place for the dead. And in, in ancient cosmology, when life ends, you're taken on this river. And, and this river moves you underground past these two large mountains and through this gate that leads you into the, your final resting place, this gates of death. And David brings this up because his affliction this oppression that he is experiencing where enemies of of the truth that he knows are are attacking him on all sides. The hurt and the pain that has, has hurled at him has turned his head and fixed his eyes on his own end. He is nearer to death than he has ever known. And life with God and, and blessings and, and the, the being encouraged and this, this, this raising up of his dignity and, and worth, those things seem just far away from him right now. 
It's like saying, God, I know that I'm worth something, but right now, I certainly do not feel it. Whether it's the mess of my own making or the mess of others. I am not, I am feeling kind of crummy right now. It is in those moments of injustice, the moments when we feel like life is leaving us, like there's nothing else to live for. And it's in those moments where God seems furthest away, like he is the last being on heaven and earth that would be there for us. Because why, O Lord, would I be in a place of such suffering and sin sickness? And yet, ironically, this is also the moment that God is most near. Because in our oppression, in our shame and embarrassment and disgrace, we reach this point when there is nothing left to hold on to. There is nothing left and nothing more that we could do for ourselves. That we are no longer the vehicle for our own grace. We are no longer the vessels through which we will find salvation and hope. And we are desperately in need of rescue. And what you find when people experience suffering is that often the first being that comes to mind, the first thing that comes to their lips is God. God, where are you? I'm seeking you out. God, why would you do such a thing? And even those who are far from God will say, see, this must prove there is no God because I am suffering. And yet what I, what I find amazing is that even in those moments, the thought of God still draws near. And I think the reason why is that the presence of God is 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 most deeply found because God is for the least of us. He is there for those who are marginalized, those who are outcast, those who are exiled, those who are shamed, those who are put down, those who are brought low, those who are humiliated. That God is for you. That he is a just God. So God invites us here to extend our plea to him, to ask simply that we would be remembered. Justice is not for those who do not require it. Justice is for those who have been crushed by the realities of the fallen human community. The needy are those with few or no resources of their own to depend on, no social capital that would allow them to trust in human systems. God is for them. He is for the needy. He is for the least. If you find yourself depending on yourself for everything, for your own value and worth, for your security, for your own good, then you are trusting in human systems. And it is that trust that it is in that, that season of trust in ourselves that we tend to forget the goodness and grace of God. Thanks God, I've got it covered. Come back to me when things aren't so great. And if that's the case, you are not in need of God's grace. Then God will graciously withhold it. God's grace isn't for you. His grace is for those who need his grace, not for those who earn it, not for those who expect it. It is for those who need it, who desperately need to be lifted out of despair and hopelessness, out of shame and loss, out of brokenness. Those who have nothing left, God remembers you. God gives you hope. My prayer is that as, as the church, as the community of people, the collective 
of those who have been touched by grace, who have experienced mercy, and who have committed together to follow Jesus, that we would be the representation of God's kingdom on the earth, and that we would ultimately embody God's heart for the least, God's sense of justice, that we would also be a place of refuge where people can find their human dignity restored, where compassion and grace and forgiveness and truth reign supreme and where God's just fairness is extended to all. I will because you have. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I'll invite the team up. Yahweh, my simple prayer would be that our hearts would break with yours. That we would begin to see how you have made us and how you are are pursuing us and how you long to have that relationship with us. I thank you that you are a just God and I know that that is sometimes hard to take and to, to even say those words means that I am even setting myself up to be found wanting when I myself have committed those injustices toward myself, toward other people. I admit, Father, that I am not as just as you are. That I am not a good definition for what is right and wrong and good and true. And you are. So, Father, I submit to that. Help me to surrender to your idea of what is good and right and true. Help me to see others who are desperately in need and not to pronounce judgment on them, but to promote justice for them. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that you love us and that you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.